0: So we are continuing the series that we started at the beginning of the summer as we've been going chapter by chapter uh, and studying the book of Romans. And Romans is a book that was written by a man named Paul. He was an apostle. He, He was one of the core people that started the first century church after Jesus ascended to heaven. Again, he went around and was starting churches in all these different towns around the areas. He was spreading the news of Jesus Christ. And, and then he wrote many letters to all of these different churches. And um, this was one of his, as um, many will argue, one of his best works, right, in the book of Romans. He wrote this letter to the people of Rome. Um, and in this letter, he talks, and we've seen throughout these weeks as we've studied it from the very beginning and chapter by chapter, he talks about the very basics of our faith, Right? And, and he talks about the gospel message and about who God is and who we are and how we interact with him and, and all of these things. And we saw through the first eight chapters that he kind of laid the foundation of these very hard, big picture theological truths. And we see it all culminates in chapter eight, um, where we saw that, that these, there's four huge theological statements that he makes. And, and therefore, even great memory verses that come out of Romans chapter eight. But then we saw, though, the entire letter kind of hinges on chapter 8. And, and then he moves into a new phase in chapter 9 on. And we've seen these last few weeks um, how Paul now is starting in chapter 9, and then we saw last week in 10, and we'll see again today in chapter 11, that he gets very personal and very practical. He's kind of laid the foundation and made these huge theological foundational statements. And now he starts to say, this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is when you start to live out your faith in these different ways as you move forward from salvation. Again, in chapter nine, we see that he talks about living a life as a follower of Jesus. That we live a life that pleases God above anyone else. And also, he talks that at the end of that chapter about how um, about how we need to look at what is tripping us up in our faith, right? And and how what whatever might be tripping you up could also be the most important thing that you need to pay attention to. And then we saw last week in chapter 10, as Paul reiterates, the way of salvation is completely based on faith and confession. It is not by works. It's not based on your passion level or your depth of knowledge or even your church attendance record. It is based 100% on your belief in Christ and your confession of faith in him. Right, as we saw that last week and we went back over all of the, again, the way of salvation that Paul reiterates all the way through leading up into this time, now we end up in chapter 11 as Paul continues on the same trend, as he continues to compare and contrast Jew and Gentile, and and we see him do this throughout the letter, but here again in this chapter he completely focuses on God and on clarifying some of God's foundational attributes, and just reminds us again of who God is and what his role is in our life. And so this morning, we're going to continue to read as we study Romans chapter 11. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to start off with uh, these first the first 10 verses. And so if you have your own Bible with you, please open up to Romans 11. If you don't have your own Bible or don't have it with you today, there are ones available for you that you're welcome to use in the seats. And you can grab one of those and notice the page number of where you can find this passage in those Bibles is on your outline. So we're going to pick up today Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 1, where it says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. And in the same, it is the same today for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God that they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened, as the scriptures say. God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. So we're going to pause there as we read this, this first section. And as we see, Paul again continues to, to talk about Jew and Gentile and, and the old covenant of the law versus the new covenant of grace. And, and as, he, as he continues to lay out again the, the, all of the ramifications of the way of salvation. Right, and then he gets to this point and he brings us then to this first attribute of God that we need to fully understand in order to understand the way of salvation. And that is the fact that God is gracious. Right, as you see in, in this section, again, um, Paul is using many of the same tactics, tactics to make his case that we've seen him do in these last few chapters. He makes lots of Old Testament references and some direct quotes as well as this comparison between Jew and Gentile. But the main point of this section of these 10 verses is God's grace, right? And how the first covenant, right? The the covenant of the law was was not based on grace. It was based on keeping the law. And yet we've seen, as Paul has talked over and over again, the purpose of of the law was to set up the covenant of grace, to make us realize that we can't get there on our own. And here we see as he he talks about God's grace and he teaches it here, this is an entirely new concept, especially for the Jews who were used to living according to the law, right? They had never experienced God's grace before. It was hard for them to understand and even harder for them to accept. Right, God's grace was an entirely a new concept, and yet the same is true for Gentiles, right? Gentiles even that it's not a Jew, okay, which is the rest of the world. That the grace is also a foreign concept to everyone else as well, because the truth is our world does not does not function on grace. In fact, our world functions in a way, right, that you get what you deserve. You anything you get, you earn. Right? You you make your own way. Okay, and, and that is the way that our world works. And grace is completely the opposite of that. Right? And that's his point. He's saying we have to start with the fact that God is gracious. And we see Paul explain this in verses 5 and 6 specifically. When he says, it is the same today. For few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace. His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it's not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. Now, as we see these two verses, verses 5 and 6, as Paul describes grace here for us, right, he is making his best attempt at defining what grace really is. Now, grace is not something that's easily defined. Right? It's hard to, to put a, 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 an accurate word picture around the concept of grace. Again, this is one of the attributes of God. This is at his core character. This is God is full of grace that to, 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 to completely defines who he is. Again, just as, as hard as it is to try and define who God is, right, it's is just as hard to define grace. And and yet we see many have tried over the history of our faith. And in fact, many popular authors even today and different preachers and Bible scholars have tried to put a, just a handle on a good definition of grace. And, and yet nothing really gives it everything it deserves. But some of the different definitions that I've heard, again, and and people have heard it described as unmerited favor. Okay, one of the real popular Christian authors of our time, Francis Chan, he wrote an entire book on grace as he defined it as crazy love. Right, and yet here in these verses, we see Paul's attempt at defining grace. And in these verses, he uses many descriptive words as he's trying to, to wrap around and get us to understand exactly what grace means. Right? Again, and I encourage you in your outline to circle some of these words. I mean, he uses words like undeserved many different t- a couple different times in these verses. Undeserved, Again, circle that word, undeserved. Okay, he also uses the word kindness a couple different times. Again, that's, that's one to circle, right? That that's in the, in the, needs to be in your definition of grace. Because we see another, you know, phrase that he works, which is very, very important about grace, is this phrase when he says, not by their good works. Again, grace is not something you can earn. Right, just like our salvation is not something we can earn, right? Our salvation is by grace. It's not by our good works. And then we see at the at the very end, this this these last few words of this verse is as he continues to describe and rehash the definition of grace. As we see this word, free. Circle that word. Free. Again, I can't I can't get it. I can't pay for it. I can't earn it. It is free. Right, because just as he says, if I did earn it by my good works, then it wouldn't be grace. Right? And I challenge you as a follower of Jesus, as you study his word and, and God's plan of salvation and and all that it means for your life is I challenge you to come up with your own working definition of grace. Like I said, many have come before you and many have tried and, and we all kind of have an understanding, but, but, but yet I, I encourage you to think about what does it mean in your life and what does it mean for your faith and, and come up with your own working definition of grace. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a place to start, okay? The, the Greek word for grace that is used here is charis. Okay, just charis, and you can Google that and find a a, start, a starting definition. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, is the Greek word for grace. Okay, now if you, again, work on that definition, find that because when you find that working definition of grace, it, it describes the God that you serve because it's a part of his character, it is God is gracious. And then Paul continues on to, to give us another attribute in this next section of this chapter in verses 11 through 16. So we're gonna pick up there, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Or it says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this, especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as an apostle to the Gentiles, and I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because of the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too as we stop there, and again, now we see this next attribute that Paul describes of God. And that is not only is God gracious, but also God wants to save everyone. Okay, God wants to save everyone. And again, we see this, this ongoing comparison about Jews and Gentiles and, and about how they were God's chosen people, but yet they were disobedient and then it opened the way for us. And, but yet ultimately it opened up, that is God's character. That is God's heart as he wants to save the entire world he wants to save everyone. And as we see that attribute, right? The, then we see at the very beginning of this this section, okay, Paul makes the point okay, that the Jews, even though they have rejected God and rejected the the new covenant of grace, they are not beyond recovery. And as we realize that, again, just the heart of God is to save everyone. Then we learn then not just for them, but it's the same is true for us. That no matter what you have done in your life, or how far away from God you are, just like the fallen Jews, you are never beyond recovery. Thank you, Jesus. Right? You cannot, as a human, you cannot be unsavable because of something you have done or an attitude you've had. That you are never beyond recovery. And we see then in verse 15, right, where Paul says, he says, now since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. Now, as, again, he's describing when the, the heart of God, he wants to save everybody. And, and what does it look like when God saves you? He says, again, they rejected, but now they come to God. And again, it will be incredibly wonderful if you come back to God. When you are saved, and he says, and when you are, then it is life for those that are dead. Okay, I encourage you, I'll underline that phrase. This phrase right here, life for those who were dead. That is an incredibly powerful statement. because that's exactly what happens when you receive Christ your savior and he comes into your life and, and he transforms your heart and all of a sudden what was meant to be dead, again, the wages of sin is death. That's what Paul has taught us over and over and over again leading up to this statement. And yet now God being gracious and wanting to save everybody. When he saves you, he takes what was dead and he breathes it full of life. God is the author of life. And he wants to make alive anything that is dead. If you remember, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what he did, right? He made Adam and then he breathed life into his nostrils because God is the author of life. And that's exactly what he wants to do in our lives today when we turn to him and he saves us and he breathes new life. God is in the resurrection business right, of taking what was dead and making it alive. And the heart is that God wants to save everyone. Everything that is dead, God wants to save. And that's what he wants to do for you, is take whatever is dead in your life and make it alive. And then we move into the next section of this chapter, verses 17 through 27, Okay, and here now Paul continues to build his case as he teaches us these new, more attributes of who God is. And in verses 17 through 21, he goes into this, a whole new analogy that he uses to make this point even further. Okay, he goes into this analogy of, of grafting a tree. Okay, he talks about, again, we have this, and he kind of set it up here in this, this section we just read, and he talks about this tree and about how the root is holy, and, and you know, the roots start with God, and then it, it grows up this tree of, of the Jewish people, and and, and then he, he talks about, right, how some of them, right, they rejected Christ, and and then and then he talks about how those branches were cut off, and then making room for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles get grafted into the tree. Now, I don't know if you have very much experience with plants and farms and or orchards and all this kind of thing but i don't have a lot about fruit trees and and how you care for grafting in trees yeah, i don't have a lot but i do i'd say i went to middle school high school in yakima washington in yakima washington there are orchards everywhere you know there's a few there's less orchards now than there were when i was in high school but but there there are still orchards everywhere some of my good friends in high school literally lived in the middle of an orchard right and their, their families farmed apples Okay, that was their life, and I remember even just hanging out at their house, and you just going down their driveway, and just being able to pick off these huge, juicy apples right on the way to their house. Like, you know, we always went to hang out at their house because they always had good apples at their house. And, but, but, but part of seeing that, and that one of the things they do when they, as they grow apples, is they they graft in different kinds of apples into one tree. Okay, in fact, when you go to the grocery store and you see there's like Red Delicious, Gold Delicious apples. And then there's all of these like hybrid mixed types of apples, right? Okay, this is how they make those apples. They they take one branch and they graft it into the tree of a different kind of apple. And then it produces this kind of hybrid fruit. Okay, now this is the process that Paul is describing here in in this this analogy of this tree of God and and how the Jews were God's people and they were the tree, but yet they got cut off and we got grafted in as Gentiles. Now, like I said, I don't have a huge working knowledge of grafting in a tree, but, but I'll tell you, this is a picture of an apple tree that has been grafted. And to graft it, you have to cut off a branch, then you cut off small branches on another tree and you have to slice them all open and kind of put them all together and build them, mold them all together. And the grafting process is hard on the tree and it's hard on the donor branches. Okay, in fact, it is hard on every part of the process. Okay, it takes a lot of transformation on both sides. This is not an easy process, which is why Paul uses this example. Again, in their context, it was olive trees. It wasn't apple trees, right? But this was a concept that they would understand. And as they saw this, again, this process was hard, but the results were worth it. Right, this process is hard because the results are worth it. I mean, here's a picture of a grafted apple tree. Right, when it's successful and it works, and you see you have two different kinds of apples coming out of one tree. Right, and we end up with all those this delicious hybrid type of apples right, that we get and that we enjoy. The process is extremely hard on the tree. But the results are worth it. Which leads us then to the next attribute that Paul presents as he uses this example of grafting a tree. And then he gives us the next attribute in verse 22. And that attribute is that God is kind and severe. Okay, does God want the best for you? Absolutely. Is he going to make your life as easy as it can be? Nope. Because God is kind and severe. Not because he wants to be mean to you, but because he wants the end results to be worth it. That is exactly what Paul tells us in verses 22 and 23. When he names his attribute, and then he goes on from there. He says, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. God is both kind and severe. And God, again, wants the best for you, even if the process is going to be hard. And the process of you growing in your faith and moving forward in your journey and, and all those things, it is not easy. But God is kind and he's also severe because of the first two attributes, because he's gracious. And he wants to save everyone and he wants the best for you. And that process is not going to be easy. But notice in this is, um, again, he says that, right, why were they cut off in the first place? They were cut off because of their unbelief in who Christ was. And, And yet, he comes down to this, right, and just says, but also God's heart, right, is to save everyone. He wants to graft them back into the tree. Now again, when a branch gets cut off of a tree, it does not stay alive, right? And, and Paul is purposely describing a miraculous event. Once again, go back to what we just saw in the previous verses, right? He wants to take what was dead and make it alive. Because can you re-graft in a dead branch? No. You cannot do that. Physically, you cannot do that in a tree. But again, God can do anything God wants to do. Right? And God wants to graft them back in. Again, he goes back to the point he makes in chapter 10. It's your belief that makes you a part of the tree, and it's your unbelief that gets you cut off of the tree. Okay? And yet the heart of God is that he wants to graft you back in. It is your belief that saves you. And it is your unbelief that cuts you off from salvation. And then we move into the next section in verses 28 through 32, where he gives us the next attribute of God. We're going to pick up Romans chapter 11 at verse 28. Which says, many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For, the good, for for God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. As we read these verses in this description again of God's plan. And as he plays it out, he's like, God will even use our own disobedience to get us to realize that we need him and all this. And yet um, the next attribute that Paul gives us is the motivation of why God would go to all this trouble. All right, why would God even do that? What's his motivation? All right, and that's the next attribute is that God is full of love. That was God's motivation. That's why even Started this elaborate plan, right, of, of how to save us and sending Jesus to live us in this life and die on a cross and rise again on the third day so we could be saved because he loves you. And he loves me. And he's gracious. And he wants to save everyone. And he's kind and severe because he wants the best for us. It's all rooted in love. Again, as we see that, again, these verses 28 and 29. Right. Many of people are now enemies of the good news, which benefits us as Gentiles. Yet there's still people that he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Underline that phrase. God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. You know what that means? That means no matter what I do or what I say or how horrible my attitude is or whatever it would be, no matter how much I reject God, it doesn't change the fact that God loves me. His gifts and his call could never be withdrawn. Right, to quote Paul from one of his other letters, right, is nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Because at the core of who God is, is God is full of love. Love. And that is his motivation for everything that he does. And then we see this, this final section of the chapter, verses 33 through 36, where he gives us this last attribute as he's building this airtight case. Verse 33, says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is, it is for us to understand his decisions, and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And as we see, read these these concluding verses of this chapter, and in fact, this even three chapter section of the letter, as we see this final attribute that Paul teaches us, and that is that God's ways are higher than our ways. right? That there are things about God and about his plan and about this world and about all kinds of things that we just simply will not understand. Because God is the author of life. He is the creator of this world. He is the sovereign God, meaning he has authority over everything. Okay, that his ways are higher than my ways. Again, just as he says in verse, verse 33, he says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Has God ever acted in a way that shocked me? Absolutely. Right, have I ever thought that I had it all figured out and I told God how he should do it? I've tried that and god be like, nope, you're wrong. Because God can see things I can't see. God knows things that I don't know, right? And God sits back again and says, hey, let you be you, let me be me. Hey, because my ways are higher than your ways. There are things I do that you're just not gonna understand and you just need to trust me. And that's what God sits back. Now believe me, I have lots of things that I wanna ask God. I can look back at different situations and different things and say, God, What were you thinking? Right, there are some, again, some, it's fun to kind of sit around and think about these questions that we have for God. Okay, one of the questions I have for God is, why did you create mosquitoes? And why do they like me so much? I don't get it. Right, I mean, fish can eat other bugs, it would be fine. Right, but Again, we have these things. I mean, it might be something silly, right? Or something incredibly huge and important to you. Right? But God's ways are bigger than our ways. Right? And there, there are many questions in this life right, that we wish we had the answers to. And sometimes God reveals some of those answers, and, and sometimes He doesn't. And that's, again, where my trust has to pick up and say, God, I trust you because you're gracious. And you want to save everyone and you're kind and severe and you're full of love. And and because of all of these attributes, I can trust the fact that you are higher than than my ways. And even if I don't know, and even if I don't understand, I don't get the answer, I can still trust in the God that does know. Because of all these attributes that Paul has taught us today. There are so many things that I wish I knew about God and knew about our world and how it all fits together but I don't. But that also brings a peace that can come only from God and knowing that God does know and knowing that he loves me and he wants the best for me. That even if he's severe to me, that it's for a good reason because the results are worth it. And as we think about all of these attributes of God and think about, you know, everything he presents to us, even in this section and the way of salvation and, and I live in to please him, and all of these things, that he starts from 9, 10, and 11. I want to look at today and ask you this question. What is your reaction to this description of God? We look at all these attributes of God today, and what's our reaction? Paul's been building a case now for three chapters. He started in 9 and in 10, and now he wraps up in 11, of saying, what is your reaction to God? to his plan of salvation, to, to what he wants to do in your life, to whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't really matter. What matters is your reaction to all of this. What's your reaction? As we think about that idea this morning, I want to conclude today by just watching this little video that I think illustrates really well this section of scripture and leads us to this question of what's your reaction to, to God and to his attributes? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Excuse me, son. Yeah? What have you got there? Got got some birds, some wild birds. Really? Yeah. Where'd you get them? Got them in the field over there. There's a field with wild birds. Huh. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind my asking, what are you going to do with them? I want play games with them. Games? Yeah, I like to play games with wild birds, yeah. What kind of games? Um, Sometimes I like to poke a stick in there, you know, and they'll be like going gah, 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 like that, you know? And then sometimes I like to rattle up the cage, and they think it's an earthquake, and they love that. What happens to them after you're done playing games with them? Mm, usually I feed them my cat. Yeah, my cat likes wild birds. i tell you what, I am fond of wild birds. You are? Yeah, let me buy them from you. You want to buy my wild birds? Yeah. Or no good for nothing, they can't do no tricks or nothing, and when you open this gate, they're just going to fly away. How much? You're serious? I'm very serious. $5. All right. $10. Okay. $20. Th- they're wild birds. They're exotic birds. You found them in a field. An exotic field. All right, that's all I got. cage. Yeah. What do you got in there? You know what's in there? Mankind. Found them in the garden. The funny thing is they put themselves in that cage. I had nothing to do with it. So what's your plans with them? I am going to play games with them. Games? What kind of games? All kinds of games. I'm going to put games into their life that they think is going to bring them so much pleasure. Then I'm going to turn the world upside down. I'm going to make right seem wrong and wrong seem right. And then? They'll be damned for all eternity. My father and I, we're very fond of mankind. I know. We want them to have access to us. So... I'm going to pay for their freedom. You want these humans? Yeah. You know they've promised you everything before. They're going to turn their backs on you. Some will, and some won't. You're serious. Oh, I'm very serious. It'll cost you your tears. I know. Your blood. Yeah. It'll cost you your life. I know. You're willing to give your life. I'm willing to give what it takes. This reminds us about what Jesus did for us on the cross. He picked up that wooden cross and carried it to Mount Calvary because he loved you and me. Paul uses this section of the letter. I think it's very personal, very practical. He starts out in nine and 10 and now in 11 as he describes who God is and everything he's willing to do for you to set you free. And the question still remains, what is gonna be our reaction to this description of God? Are we gonna stay in the cage? are we going to let Jesus let us out? And if he lets us out, then are we going to continue to live for him or choose to get back in the cage? Are we going to journey forward in our faith and grow in him and trust in him and even when we don't know the answers, are we going to rely on the fact that God is gracious, that he wants to save everyone, and he's kind and severe, and he's full of love? And that he knows more than I know. As you think about that, again, throughout this, this letter, Paul gives a warning a couple different times to the Gentiles in this whole story. Right? And that warning was, stay humble. Don't think too highly of yourself and your role in this whole grand scheme. Right? Because these same attributes of God apply to you as much as they do to Jews. Because... In the gospel, and the way our world works, right? Jew and Gentile doesn't matter because this is still true of who God is and what his plan is for you and for me. So again, I don't know where you are in your faith journey, but again, Paul tells us in verse 25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery so that you will not feel proud about yourselves because you cannot save yourself. Only God can save you, right? And what's going to be your reaction? Again, I don't know if you receive Christ as your savior, if you've never believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth, as Paul tells us in chapter 10. And you can do that today. That can be your reaction. You can leave here today uh, knowing that you are a follower of Jesus and you are saved and you've been set free and you've been brought to life. Right, if you've never prayed and received Christ your Savior, I encourage you to do that today. Right, maybe you have, but yet maybe your journey is not one that you're making a lot of progress. Right, God's calling you to be reminded of who he is and what you need to be. And I hope that you'll make that commitment and that next step of your faith. And whatever the next step of your faith journey is, I encourage you to take it. And I don't know what that is, but I venture to say you probably do. So I just encourage you today, as we wrap up this service today and as we contemplate who God is and, and what's our reaction going to be, I want to end this morning with the same way that Paul ends this, this section of the letter, which is with Romans 11:36. He said, "For everything comes from him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. All glory to him, forever. All glory to God. And whether you need to be saved today, whether you need to just take that next step of your journey, or whether you're doing awesome in your faith, know that it's all for his glory. Okay, I just encourage you to take whatever step God's leading you to take today. And oh Lord, we praise you today, God, that great is your grace towards us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we can rest in your grace. God, in your love, in your heart to save everyone. God, that you are kind and severe. But God, that we know that you, Lord, want all of us to be saved. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we go this week, that we would take that step of our faith, God, not just right here this morning, God, but we would take it with us as we go out into this world and live our daily life. God, that as we represent you in everything that we do, God, that we would be more like you tomorrow than we are today as we continue forward in our journey of faith. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, God, for all you do, for all you bring, for giving us life and freedom. For God, it's this week as we live into it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.